this is Classical Music Decoded. I'm Dino Madrumutu. This is a new series called Conversations, in which I speak to people who are prominent in classical music in South Africa. People you might have heard of or seen on stage, but about whom we know very little. Well, it's time to find out more about them. And my first guest is one of the doyens of classical music in this country, and is arguably the best-known conductor around these parts. He's been tirelessly promoting classical music for a long time now, and many people know him from R&B Starlight Classics. He's also a former colleague. We were both broadcasters on Classic FM. And my guest is Richard Koch. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Dino. Very nice to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm very pleased to have you know, a large presence, such as your good self. Now, I want to tell you about a conversation between an acquaintance of mine and someone she knows. And this conversation took place shortly after the demise of Classic FM. And my acquaintance informed me that her interlocutor said, if another classical radio station is established, it must involve Richard Koch, because he is Mr. Classical Music. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I suppose the title that was conferred on you is an indication of the esteem in which you are held, and also because you have been a very visible and very active presence on the classical music scene in this country. So when did you start hosting concerts? I think I started hosting concerts uh, pretty soon after I returned from a stint in the UK. When I'd finished university here, and I was at the University of Cape Town for four years, I taught here for six months before moving to the UK. And I went there to study for a year. I stayed there then for eight years altogether. Uh, and very soon after I came back here, I started doing concerts, obviously, because that's part of what I do. I uh, came back here to run choirs and to get involved with the orchestra. And very soon we started doing concerts. In fact, I arrived back in September of 1980. And our first series of concerts was Christmas that year with the Symphony Choir of Johannesburg, which was then the SABC Choir, right. and the Chanticleer Singers. And uh, we did two concerts then at Christmas that year. And then the following year, we started doing obviously much more. We had a whole year planned out and I started conducting lunchtime concerts with the orchestra and so on. So you've been doing this now for almost 43 years. Indeed. And even before that, I mean, I was doing concerts mainly with kids in the UK because I was teaching at the choir school in Chichester where we sang every day in the cathedral at Chichester. And we had a very active school. It was the choir school. And they used to do a lot of concerts. Um, with We had school choirs. We had an orchestra. We had different ensembles in the school. We were always doing concerts. I had organized a series of concerts in the cathedral, the cathedral lunchtime concerts. Now, th this is that very famous cathedral that's about a 1,000 years old or more. It's uh, more. Because, uh, no, 900. Mm -hmm. in, in 1975, it was 900 years old. Okay. So it's getting on for a thousand years mm -hmm. now. And um, I, I got very involved in concert organization there, which gave me some good skills for when I came back here. Uh, and yeah, I love being in front of an audience. I love drawing audiences in, whether it's on radio or live. 
Um, and that's, yeah, that's what I enjoy doing. And, and my task in South Africa has actually been to make classical music more accessible to the public. But it's a task that you have done with much aplomb for these last few decades. Yeah, and I've enjoyed it. It's been, South Africa has been very good to me. I've had a lot of opportunities. You see, when I was in the UK, uh, once you're in the sort of cathedral music scene, that's basically where you will stay. And not that I would have objected to that, but after eight years in the UK, I actually felt a very strong calling to come home for many reasons. My family was here uh, and I was missing home. Things had sort of worked themselves out in the UK after eight years. I'd had a good time there and I learned a lot, a lot. And uh, I just felt it was time to come home. Okay. Well, your journey to becoming Mr. Classical Music started somewhere, and I believe that place was the Eastern Cape. That's where you're from. Which, which yes. part of, of the Eastern Cape? I was born in Port Elizabeth. Uh, in fact, the house where I was born uh, is still standing in Villiers Road in Port Elizabeth. Number 95, there was a midwife who lived in number 95, and we lived in number 91. So um, I remember my mother telling me that when the time came, she would just collect the budgie and my sister and walk up the road, two houses, mm. to the house. And the, the sister who was there, Sister Vate, said, this is not a holiday home. Take them home, she said. <laughs> so she walked, she walked back to the house, left my sister and the budgie, <laughs> and then walked back uh, to have me. Uh, and so I was born there. I went to school there. Um, St. Anne's Convent, and then Warmer Primary School. And then I went to Woodridge Prep School. Funny enough, there was no music at Woodridge Prep School. I used to have a, well, I can't say there was no music. I used to have a piano lesson once a week uh, with a Mrs. Bunderman. That's all I can remember. And um, then it was really when I went to senior school in Cape Town, because while I was at prep school, and it was a boarding school. My parents left Port Elizabeth and moved to Cape Town. I was left behind at the oh, boarding school, right. <laughs> uh, where I stayed for the next three years. Uh, so we travelled back and forth by I travelled back and forth by train. By train. <laughs> and oh, that's just the cat. It's fine. The kitty does as the kitty wants. So that's no problem. Yeah. So uh, I used to travel back and forth by train. And I often think, you know, you would never do that now. Yes. Uh, I was put alone on the train in Cape Town, and you were you left at four o'clock in the afternoon. You travelled the whole of the next day, and the two days later you arrived in Port Elizabeth. <laughs> it was a crazy trip, and my I remember my mother in floods of tears as she put her little darling onto the train. Mm. Uh, I was probably in floods of tears too, but actually it it became part of the the ritual. And it was, I enjoyed those train trips. So did your moving to Cape Town, is that where the exposure to classical music happened? Yeah, when I went to senior school, I, I, I left the prep school and I went to Bishop's College in Cape Town, Diocesan College. And there, my very first week in the school, um, I met the director of music, who was a man called Claude Brown. And he, uh, in the first singing class we had, he asked me to sing and he said, I want you in the choir. And I remember I was sitting next to it. We, we used to share desks in those days. I don't know if you remember those I days. remember them. Two yep. to a desk. Mm -hmm. 
And the chap I was sitting next to was called Peter Robinson. And when I went to sit down, he said, bad luck, you're in the choir. <laughs> so, but it was the beginning of an extraordinary journey. Um, and I somehow just slotted into it. I then started learning the organ as well. I mean, I did play the piano, but uh, I remember the, uh, the report I got from my piano was, should study the organ, said the, the mm -hmm. report by the person who wanted to teach me the organ, of course. Of course. Uh, Claude Brown. And so I started playing the organ, and that then became a whole sort of fetish with church music. And I got, I sang in the chapel choir, I played the organ for services, I conducted the choir, and Claude Brown uh, and latterly John Badminton, they set me on this path really and developed this enthusiasm initially for church music. Uh, that's where it all started. Okay. Were Claude Brown and John Badminton, would you consider them your mentors? Did they kind of uh, kindly heard you in yeah, the direction of music? I, I think so. They lit the spark. And John Badminton in particular um, was an influence on me because actually I wanted to be a farmer. I used to oh, spend, really? I, yeah, yeah. I used to spend all my holidays on a dairy farm with an uncle and aunt who had no children of my age. Mm -hmm. uh, she had had children, but they were long gone, uh, long uh, gone out of her household, and they had no children. I was convinced that I would be able to run this farm until my matric year when the farm was sold. And I read this was a big blow to me. And I realized that my dreams of becoming a farmer were probably null and void. So John Badminton said to me, don't worry about that. You'll make a very good music teacher, he said to me. And that was it, basically. I said, okay. Um, and I went to the College of Music in Cape Town. And the, you know, then that's where the story developed. But I had a lot of catching up to do. Mm -hmm. I'd never done music as a subject at school. I didn't know anything about the theoretical side of music at all. I just played the organ and played the piano and sang in the choir. That was it. And then you kind of took it up at university yeah, and then, then never looked a, back. Yeah, I never looked back. I had a lot of catching up to do, which I did. Um, and I worked hard at university. And as soon as I'd finished school, I took a job as a church organist also. And you learn a lot when you have to do these things. You know, course, I learned yes. a lot about how to do it, how to run a choir, how to deal with young kids. And they were kids from deprived backgrounds in observatory in Cape Town, which was a very rough suburb in those days. And I used to have to fetch and carry these kids, make sure they got home on a Friday night after choir practice, all of that stuff. Learning how to deal with people, learning how to deal with clergy. Uh, it All of that taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when I'd finished university, uh, John Badminton was going on long leave and he said, he wanted me to do the job, his job, director of music at Bishops for six months while he was on long leave. Again, gave me a lot of different experience. And yeah, that's what got me on my way. Okay. Well, as a former colleague, I can say that uh, from my observations, you are very good at dealing with people. So those experiences have obviously held you in good stead. Definitely. And then... Um, more latterly, of course, I've got more into conducting. And I've discovered that conducting is also like 
99% psychology, actually. Well, maybe not 99%, but a lot of it is dealing with people and learning how to get the best out of people. Because that's your job as anything, actually, uh, when you're in in control of people is how to get the best out of them and and make them feel good doing it. That's what I like doing, including audiences, by the way. Of course. I love getting the best out of audiences and making them happy because if people are paying good money to come to a concert, they want to go away happy. That's yeah. what I do. About your role as a conductor, you're the conductor of the Johannesburg Festival Orchestra, and you were also the conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra before government disbanded it in the mid-90s. Which other orchestras have you led? Well, uh, it wasn't the government so much as the SABC, okay. uh, which was quasi-government, a state-owned enterprise, I suppose you would call it. So that was the first orchestra I conducted was the National Symphony Orchestra. The Johannesburg Symphony Orchestra uh, was an amateur group, which I conducted from time to time. And then, you know, people forget that the National Symphony Orchestra, which was attached to the SABC, was mm -hmm. actually retrenched twice, so three times in my memory. The first time was in about 1986 or 7, uh, when the SABC decided it no longer wanted to have an orchestra, and the orchestra was absorbed by PACT. The Performing Arts Council of, of the Transvaal. Transvaal. And the SABC paid them a subsidy to take over the orchestra. So they were no longer part of the SABC. That lasted exactly five years, which was the length of the contract. The SABC took them back again. There was now a new director general, Vainant Harabsa, and he decided it was time to have the orchestra back again. So they came back. Uh, and then uh, that lasted until... No, that was 91, 94, just shortly after 94, uh, they decided that this was now, uh, again, not a good thing to have an orchestra. Mm -hmm. So they were retrenched again. And we continued to run them on a, on a freelance, well, not a freelance basis, but we had to get money in from uh, corporates, public, and so on. And that we could do until... It just became impossible eventually, and that in '99, uh, we we did it for about, I suppose, three or four years, and it was just too much money to raise, so uh, we didn't get any government subsidies or anything then, and it just became too burdensome to try and raise all this money, and so they were retrenched again for the third time, um, and then since then they've been more or less freelance. In between, when the NSO was disbanded for the first time in 19, end of, I think it was end of 86 or end of 87, uh, we started the Transvaal Chamber Orchestra. And this was the first time we sort of had a, a different type of setup altogether, where we collected people together for a series of concerts. We were funded by IBM, if you remember the days of IBM. Yes, I remember. And uh, they funded a series of concerts, and we had a very wonderful chap called Jonathan Ellenberger, who was a stockbroker, but loved music. And he said, I'll find the money, you do the music. So we did. 
And we had a Transvaal chamber orchestra. We had a, a junior orchestra. We had sort of a jazz section attached. Mm -hmm. And that went on for uh, five years until 1991 when the NSO came back to the SABC. Actually, it went on a bit longer than that. But but basically, I was then in charge of the two entities. Right. So we we tried to fill the gaps when there were gaps. And we still go on doing that now. And it's been fun, I must say. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that you enjoy making musicians feel good and also audience feel good when they uh, attend your concerts. And that brings me to R&B Starlight Classics, which is a hugely popular series of concerts. And you have been involved in uh, Starlight Classics since its inception. Now, people who attend really, really respond to the music. And this indicates that you are quite adept at concert programming. So how do you go about deciding what should be played and what shouldn't? Okay, that's that's quite a complicated question because when Starlight Classics started, it was just me basically saying, I think we should play this. It, it started like this. I was looking for money for the NSO and I went to see Lowry Dippenar at RMB and he said, I'm not gonna give you money, just hand out money. What I would like to do is to give you an opportunity to perform for our clients, which was actually much more valuable. And we, he said, I would like it at a place like the Country Club. And we've been there ever since. This the was Johannesburg the, Country Club. Johannesburg yeah. Country Club. This was in 1998. And uh, he said, we will provide the audience. You do the concert. We will do the audience. And they invited their clients and customers and... The very first year, it rained. We did one concert on a Sunday late afternoon. And it wasn't called Starlight Classics. It was called Blankets, Baskets, and Bow Ties. <laughs> 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 and uh, it rained, and we couldn't do the concert. So we postponed it till the next night, which was a Monday night, and when everybody except about four out of a thousand turned up the next night, they realized they were onto something they good. They had something good on their hands. Absolutely. And so we did the concert on a Monday night. And it was a, a success from the beginning. And it's grown since then. Yes, the mix of the program is very important. You asked about how the programming works. These days, it's slightly different. In those days, I used to choose a program and do it, and I would select the soloists and book them. Now it's become more a more sophisticated and complicated process because there's a, a team of people now who does it. Right. And uh, we it starts about a year ahead of time when we start looking at what soloists are available. In the early days, we used to promote up-and-coming talent. These days, it's more like established mm -hmm. talent and iconic people. So uh, I don't think I'm revealing any secrets if I say that, you know, people like Pretty Yende, uh, Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse, uh, a group called Malaika, uh, Zahara, all of these big-time artists are now part of Starlight Classics because the audience has become also more picky. Right. They don't just want to go to a concert with young, unknown people. They need something, you know, hard-hitting. So we've gone to a much more sophisticated type of program now. It's 
It's a more poppy program. So it started off as Starlight Classics. It's a bit less classics, although we like to think of classics as classic, you know, classics. Is this a classic? Right, uh, right. Is Sipo is Hotsticks Mabusa a classic? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is yes, he is. He's, he's not classical, but he's a classic. So iconic, I suppose, would be mm-hmm. another word. So, so the um, yardstick that, or criterion that you're using here, if I understood correctly, is how the audience perceives a certain artist, whether this is a classic artist rather than the genre of yes. music. Yeah, I think that would be true. Probably the same sort of argument that was used about classic FM mm-hmm. towards the end of its time. Yes. We didn't play so much classical music, but one of the arguments was that we are playing classics. I mean, like, what a wonderful world could mm-hmm. be called a classic. Yes. Uh, but not classical. Yeah, it's that sort of argument. So mm-hmm. there's more pop music now involved, more t- uh, South African music, definitely, uh, and more iconic artists. Okay. Now, you've done a lot to build awareness of classical music in this country, especially of local composers. And I can remember when I was a broadcaster on Classic FM and there were, you know, music by local composers and you would be the conductor of the orchestra. How many recordings have you made of the music of local composers? Uh, quite a lot. And in fact, in the archives at the SABC, there are lots, because if one goes into the archives at the SABC, there would be a lot of recordings there of South African composers, also of South African choral music composers. And at the beginning of every year, in order to get the orchestra off to a sort of gentle start, we used to do a couple of weeks of studio work, and we would record works of South African composers. We made some CDs. Marco Polo put out five CDs of um, our, the NSO playing, and much of that is South African composers, including Muerane, mm-hmm. Kumalo, Theo Vent, um, Listened Collins, all people, many of them associated with the SABC, although not in the case of Muerane and Kumalo, although in my time there, uh, they both became associated because we performed their music with the NSO. And uh, especially Professor Mzilikazi Kumala, we recorded his Ushaka. Uh, uh, I, when I used to sing in the choir in my student days, that was in our repertoire. Oh, really? Izibongo Zikashaka. That's the yes. one. So, uh, yes, I've supported South African composers and uh, another project of mine was the Joburg International Mozart Festival. And for many years, we had a composer in residence, South African composer, and they would compose a new work for uh, the festival. And they would then support younger composers. We used to do a, a composer's workshop every year in association with the Goethe Institute. And uh, we would have three or four young composers who produced works of their own. So over the years, we've built up quite a a stack of uh, South African compositions which have been recorded and will be in an archive somewhere. So to people who are interested, then how does one get hold of these recordings? You know, uh, if someone wants listening who, who thinks, gosh, I'd really like to listen to South African classical music, where can they find these recordings? Well, this is a very good and uh, probing question because there is a lot of material in the SABC archives, a lot. Also, of 
indigenous music, which was recorded in the 50s, 60s, 70s by Yvonne Huskisson, a name that's often forgotten now. Jimmy Williams was the sound engineer. They used to travel the length and breadth of South Africa making recordings of indigenous music groups, indigenous South African music, mm -hmm. traditional music. And they're all there somewhere in the archives, I hope. Uh, one never knows what's happened to the archives now, but there is a treasure trove of music somewhere at the SABC, which needs to be catalogued, dug out, uh, put on computers so that people can have access to it. There is some of it at ILAM in Grahamstown, uh, the more traditional music, but what we're talking about recordings were, were of these orchestras. recordings made by Professor Hugh Tracy. Yeah, and yes, and and some others as well at ILAM. Uh, but you're talking about recordings made with orchestras, which are at the SABC, but they're not easy to access. And and I think it would be a great thing to be able to access them. So the short answer is they're not easy to access. Okay, but they're at the SABC somewhere. We hopefully hope, we hope. Yeah. Now, you personally, which pieces of music do you find most stirring that resonate with you? Well, it depends on what concert I'm doing. I mean, if you ask me, like, if the question is, who's my favorite composer? I can say without a doubt, Johann Sebastian Bach. He's the guy who appeals to me the most. Uh, I love his works of all sorts, particularly uh, like the St. John Passion, the St. Matthew Passion, the cantatas, organ music because I started life as an organist. Uh, so I'm quite fond of organ music. Although, to be honest, I don't listen to organ recitals very easily because I'm easily bored by them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, that's where my life started and it still resonates with me deeply. And I love Bach. Uh, but um, choral works generally, Mendelssohn's Elijah mm -hmm. is another favorite of mine. In fact, there are lots uh, but if one single composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, no doubt. Well, I'm sure, you know, putting together concerts is a lot of work with all the preparation and the organization and finding funding, the rehearsals. So it probably doesn't leave you too much time for anything else. But is there anything else in which you take a keen interest apart from classical music? A grandchild. <laughs> we have a, a beautiful grandchild called Olivia, and and she's quite entertaining and quite a handful. So uh, we spend a couple of hours every week with her, uh, enjoying her. But uh, both my wife and I enjoy bird watching. I quite enjoy cooking, actually. Okay. Uh, and I I'm I seem to think I'm quite a good cook. I enjoy eating my own food. Does anyone else? Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in my family. I'm known as the the person who does the brying, uh, and that I enjoy. Uh, yeah, I enjoy walking. Um, I used to be quite a keen mountaineer in my youth, and we used to go up to the Cedarberg Table Mountain when I lived in the Western Cape. Mm -hmm. Here, it's a little more difficult. Yeah, here in Gauteng. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I enjoy the outdoors. I, I loved going to the Kruger Park. Uh, we go a couple of times a year now. We've got a friend who's got access to one of those game farms there. And we go to Shingwedzi. Well, we used to go before COVID every year to Barock in the Bush. Mm -hmm. um, so there are several things which I've built up which combine music and country life, if you like. We've got Barock in the Bush, uh, 
Fine Arts Festival in Hermanus, Silver Mountain Music, which is held at Grootvaders Bos in the mountains behind Swellendam. So I like to be able to combine music and the other things that I enjoy, like the bush. Now, when you look back over your career so far, are there any projects or accomplishments of which you are most proud or that you have found most meaningful? Something that you think, I'm glad I did that, really glad I did that. Yeah, and I think it's probably to do with uh, choral music because uh, choral music, the, the words often have uh, a deep significance. So when you're doing a, uh, let's say, a, uh, one of the Passions by Bach, the words are very powerful and the music makes them doubly so or triply so. So very often it's those things with words attached which uh, move me the most. So, and for certainly here for 43 years now, I've been running the symphony choir and the Chanticleer singers. And I think those have been some of my most moving and probably the happiest moments of my music making have been with them. So I'm, I'm proud of that uh, connection. Hundreds of choristers have been through the choirs in the 43 years. Many of them have gone on to form their own choirs later. Mm -hmm. So around South Africa, there are several choirs which are run by ex-choir members of mine, which gives me a great pleasure. And it makes me very happy that they were enthused enough to want to start their own choirs. And that makes me really happy. Now, assuming that you had the personnel and the money and the support and whatever else you needed, what project would you implement or goal would you try to achieve? It doesn't have to be music. could be anything at all. You know, I've been quite involved in community music making. So, for example, um, I've helped to provide sets of marimbas in the Southern Cape, in Kokstad, where a mutual friend of ours lives, uh, Brian Bri Clark. Brian Clark. He yeah. was my percussion teacher. There you go. So I helped buy sets of marimbas for uh, various groups around the country. Uh, I've helped to establish financially a project in Soweto. And that's if I had lots of money, I would actually give it away uh, to these various projects in order to establish them firmly. And I have been very lucky in that we've had supporters who've given us money. Some of it I use for uh, promoting concerts with choirs and so on, but a lot of it has been ploughed into other projects and also into uh, a masterclass which we established some years ago in association with the Joburg International Mozart Festival, where every year we send a singer to go and study in Germany. Mm. And that has given me great pleasure because those singers have now made it into some of the major opera houses in Europe, and they literally started with a masterclass at Northwood's house. And now they're on the stages of the world and they were really grateful for that opportunity. So to give other people the opportunities that I've had gives me enormous pleasure. And that's what I would spend money on is creating opportunities for young people to make a career out of music and to enthuse them and they in turn enthuse other people with the enjoyment that they get out of music. Because well, that's what you would do. That's what I would do. It seems like a very worthy cause. 
I'm a worthy person. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Richard, thank you very much. It's been fascinating finding out a bit about you and your background and, you know, what all you have done and what you hope to achieve. It's been, it's been great. Well, thank you, Dino. And thank you for bringing this to these podcasts to the public. And I hope they're very successful. That was Richard Koch on Classical Music Decoded, Conversations with me, Dino Madrabutu. If you'd like to get in touch, my email address is cmd at vivaldi.net. I'm also on Twitter, my handle, Dino underscore mad, D-E-A-N-O underscore M-A-D. This is Classical Music Decoded. Thanks for listening. Feel free to listen to the other episodes in the series.